Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care Disability Competent Care webinar series. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on February 8, 2017. This webinar is presented by the Lewin Group and supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about the current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Chris Duff, a disability practice and policy consultant, introduces disability competent care and disabilities. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining today's presentation. Today, we will present an overarching definition of disability and some background information to inform your understanding of the population of adults living with disabilities. We will define disability and its impact on those who live with a disability. We will be hearing from a couple of persons describing their experiences interfacing with healthcare providers. We will follow that with an overview of the seven pillars of the DCC model. Most people have viewed disability as a medical condition, such as blindness, spinal cord injury, and others. Over the last couple of decades, this definition has evolved to reflect the one on the screen, focusing instead on the impact upon those living with a disability. The DCC model is based on looking at disability from a function-based perspective understanding and addressing the limitations experienced. If you know one person with quadriplegia, the next one you meet with quadriplegia will certainly be different. We all vary by age, gender, gender identity, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, function, and a raft of other factors. Disability competent care requires that we understand the participants as individuals. Each will experience their disability differently. Each has varying disabilities and chronic conditions, and each will have different functional limitations due to their disability. Functional status identifies the impact of the disability, whereas diagnosis identifies the cause or source of the disability. Functional limitations are identified through standardized tools assessing activities of daily living, commonly referred to as ADLs, or instrumental activities of daily living, referred to as IADLs. You will hear of these throughout this webinar series. These are standardized tools that have been in use for many years and serve to provide a foundation for identifying the specific supports a person needs. As you can see in this slide, ADLs include self-care tasks, 
such as feeding, bathing, and dressing. IADLs include tasks that enable an individual to live independently in the community, such as using telephone or communication device, homemaking, meal preparation, and others. For example, a diagnosis of spina bifida doesn't indicate what an individual can do. Physical capability and capacity, along with the living environment, are indicative of varying levels of functional dependence. Thus, the need for ADL and IADL assessments. Disability types are commonly broken down into four clinical categories, usually for purposes of program or service eligibility. These are most quickly assessed, accessed, excuse me, when analyzing medical records or claims history. Examples of physical disability are a spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, or other mobility impairment. Examples of intellectual or developmental disability are autism, cerebral palsy, or other intellectual impairments. Examples of sensory impairment are a vision or hearing limitation. Examples of behavioral impairments are major depression, behavioral limitations, and chemical health challenges. It is also important to understand the differences of being born with a disability and acquiring a disability later in life. For persons born with a disability, that is all they have known, and it's quote-unquote normal to them and their family. Understanding and self-acceptance is seldom an issue. Conversely, for those who acquire a disability after they and their family have begun to establish their identity, it is a very different issue. These individuals often struggle to understand and integrate this change into their lives and self-image. Lastly, it is important to note that individuals rarely fit into one category. For most experience, components of one or more. Sometimes the coexisting or co-occurring disability is a direct result of a primary disability. An example of this would be depression or anxiety a person with a physical disability may develop due to challenges interacting with the healthcare delivery system or even friends and the broader community. Most all of us will experience some decline in function as we age. For me, I need glasses and find myself needing to write things down more for recall. Of course, though I'm still in denial, I've been told I'm losing my hearing acuity. Well, these are not commonly disabling when they first present. They become functional impairments as they become more severe. Lastly, it is important to understand the distinction between visible and invisible disabilities. Visible disabilities are those that are readily evident to others, such as spasticity or the need to use a wheelchair. Invisible disabilities are those that are not as readily evident to others. They include hearing loss, diabetes, arthritis, and many mental illnesses. Because many live with this invisible limitations, it is extremely important to inquire of the individual whether they have any disabilities or limitations they would like you to know about.
Alternatively, you could ask if they have any accommodation needs. This is especially true when interacting over the phone where you don't even have the benefit of a visual image. In 2015, an estimated 14% of non-institutionalized, male and female, of all ages and races, ethnicity and education levels in the United States reported a disability. These statistics were calculated by Cornell University using the U.S. Census Bureau's 2015 American Community Survey. Other governmental estimates have the number as high as 20%. Therefore, between 40 and 50 million persons in the United States live with a disability. Looking at this from a different perspective, there are 7.5 million dual-eligible individuals under age 65 in the U.S., most of whom are duly eligible due to disability status. Let me clarify here, by duly eligible, I mean they are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. It is also important to look deeper than just the incidence of disability. Research has shown these individuals experience material hardship, including difficulty paying rent or utility bills, food insecurity, limited access to medical and dental services, limited options for transit, under unemployment or underemployment, family and social relationships, social opportunities, and meaningful activities. They are also disproportionately represented in racial and ethnic groups and are growing in number as the population ages. Building upon the last slide, research has demonstrated that persons with disabilities experience significant health disparities. They experience worse outcomes and are less likely to receive recommended care. They experience delays or barriers in accessing necessary care. They have lower levels of receiving recommended health screenings, such as breast and colon cancer screens, and cholesterol and diabetes care. Many have not had an annual dental visit, which is commonly due to accessibility issues. They have limited knowledge and access to sexual health information and others. It is our hope and intention that this and related disability competent care trainings will begin to address these disparities. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine are about to release a report on social risk factors and their impact on Medicare and Medicaid costs. As the government moves from fee-for-service payment to a variety of value-based payment models, it has been demonstrated that social factors need to be accounted for in value-based payments, for diagnosis alone does not fully reflect the cost of care. This report identified five domains of social risk, which have certainly been well known for years by those living with a disability or those of us working with the population. The STARS quality metrics and measures are one strategy being used to address this concern. 
along with the social factors, it is necessary to be aware of disability-related biases. These biases can often inhibit listening to and learning from the participant. Together, you and the participant can develop plans and strategies that will result in the best care and minimize adverse health outcomes. This will be addressed in much greater detail in the third webinar of this series. At this point, we're going to show a short video. Please remember to turn on your computer sound. These vignettes that we're going to show in this webinar and some of the others were developed by DREDF in California. They show people talking about their experiences interacting with the healthcare system. The first is Jim Lebrecht, who was born with spina bifida. He grew up outside of New York City and went to college in Southern California. Jim moved to the East Bay of Northern California to take a job with the Berkeley Repertory Theater as a sound engineer. He has recently opened his own business serving the film industry. In this clip, Jim is referencing the biases we all bring to working with people with disabilities. He's asking us to listen to the experience of your participants and together build a plan of action. Here's the key here, I think. So there's many ways to deal with certain situations. And, but your patient that has a chronic illness has been dealing with it 24-7. And you're, they're rolling into your, walking into your, in your room. And it's like, and if you knew how to trust their judgment versus your years of experience in medical school and collaborate with them, I think you get much better results. If all of your knowledge about kind of the world and techniques of dealing with folks has been based in medical school and has been based basically in people who are bipeds, you know, people who are walking around who don't really have any uh, active disability going on, then you're missing out on some really important information. I think that looking at your patient with a disability as a resource and not a problem would be a really great place to start. Ask them and learn from them and then share that information. I think Jim uh, explains the situation well. I think this is also a good point for me to reference some, some language issues. Jim used the word patient at one point in his video. I tend to use the word participant. Client is also used in the field. Um, what people with disabilities generally prefer is a more active um, reference. So being a patient kind of implies passive, passive to the professional who's telling them what they need. We as participants to reflect their active involvement uh, with their care team. As most of you know, well, there are many challenges in the existing healthcare delivery system. This slide describes the key challenges and their results. Presently, care is commonly reactive and proscriptive. It is fragmented, as exemplified by the fact that most persons with disabilities see multiple specialists who have limited access to experienced primary care. Many settings of care are inaccessible 
to some degree, from getting into the building, to as simple as being able to maneuver within an exam room. Lastly, care is increasingly becoming standardized and uniform. While this is often good, being based on extensive studies and research, most persons with disabilities have extenuating situations or issues that may require modifications from this standardized care. The result of this care is extensive, avoidable cost, both financial and personal. Poor care results in avoidable costs and often misery on behalf of the participant. Payment incentives are misaligned, leading to transfer of costs to other payers, providers, or even the participants. Lastly, as mentioned earlier, there is a very limited availability of experienced primary care practitioners willing and able to see persons with disabilities. At this point, I will move into the disability competent care model itself. As the statement says, it is designed to meet the needs of the participant and address their resulting functional limitations, not just their diagnosis or condition. This slide describes basic tenets of the model of care. It is participant-centered and delivered by an interdisciplinary care team. It focuses on the maintenance of health, wellness, and life in the community and the, as the particip participant chooses. The model recognizes and treats the individual as a whole person, not just a diagnosis or another descriptor. It is designed to respond to the participant's physical and clinical needs while also considering their emotional, social, intellectual, and spiritual needs. This slide is simply another way of demonstrating those basic tenets. The DCC model calls for a shift in attitude from the traditional medical model, where the professional knows best, to the DCC model, which is also known as the person-centered model. For example, the problem is not the person's impairment, but the dependency that results from the attitudes and environmental barriers. That moves the locus of the problem from the individual to the environment. The solution to the problem changes from fixing the person, for most cannot be fixed, to barrier removal. The individual is not viewed as a patient or client, but as a participant, consumer, or user of service. Lastly, but very significantly, the control is shared between the professional and the participant, with final choice lying with the participant. If you reflect back to the vignette of James Lebrecht, I think you will see all of this referenced in his comments. At this point, we would like to show another video and again turn 
on your sound if you'd like to listen to her talk. We will hear here from Karen Schneiderman. She is currently the Director of Advocacy at the Boston Center for Independent Living. As with Jim, she was born with spina bifida. She grew up on the East Coast, went to college on the West Coast, and then returned east for work. I mean, there are two classes of people. There are the professionals and there are the patients. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. And in fact, I think that if you express either a strong opinion or you appear to be intelligent, I think sometimes that's used against you because it's like you're engaged in a little warfare with the medical community. I understand the need for medical expertise, but I think that there are some areas where the person with the disability needs to be um, consulted um, and trusted to have the best um, either solution or something that will prevent things from getting worse or some new problem arising. They do not understand that they have certain skills and those skills are to be respected, but that people with disabilities have their own skills as it comes to using, uh, experiencing their own body, working with their own body, taking care of their own body. And if we don't work collaboratively, the health care will break down. And I hope you're getting the point. We're trying to model here listening to the participant. They are the ones who are living with it, who have the history, and often bring very important insights into where to go from here in terms of what their needs are. I think these vignettes and the future ones we will show, most of whom will be from the DREDF website, help model this interaction. The DCC model evolved from a few pioneering programs in the late 1990s. These programs matured and revised their model. Components were adopted more broadly by health plans and health systems. This model has evolved into what has become known and recognized as best practices. The DCC model was developed by those involved in the pioneering organizations and was released in 2013 following input from subject matters and experts and field testing by several health plans. It is being revised to reflect the experience of the last several years and further development of the field and practice. This slide contains a diagram of the core values of the DCC model. I won't go further into being participant-centered, for I have been addressing this throughout the webinar. Respect for participant choice and dignity is sometimes challenging for providers. Most of us were trained in a skill or a profession and have gained specific knowledge. We have been expected to impart that knowledge on people, telling them what we think is best for them. But that often backfires. 
resulting in frustration for all involved, a breakdown in trust, and reflects a disrespect of the individual participant. Most importantly, it seldom brings about the best outcome. We have provided some webinars in the past on this subject, which you can find at the RIC website. Thirdly, elimination of medical and institutional bias is also a hard concept. What we're addressing here is a judgment or honest belief that an individual may best be taken care of in a certain setting, such as a nursing home or group home. While that may, in fact, be true from a purely medical perspective, it will certainly not be successful and can be inconsistent with the, if it's inconsistent with the goals and expectations of the participant. In summary, people with disabilities have unique needs and challenges with the healthcare delivery system. The DCC model requires a change in mindset and in practice and serves as a tool to help providers meet the unique needs of the population. Based on user feedback and the experiences and developments of the field, we have restructured the DCC model into seven pillars of disability competency. As you can see, they start with the basic tenets of the model to participant engagement, access, primary care, care coordination, long-term services and supports, and behavioral health. I will briefly go through the remaining slides, giving a little more attention on each pillar. We have focused on this pillar throughout this webinar, so I won't go into it any further at this point. The second pillar focuses on participant engagement. To build trust, we suggest starting off by asking the participants to describe themselves and their life. Ask what is important to them and what they want and need. Participant engagement is not just limited to effective communication with the participant, but also with the participants, family members, and other caregivers. This very seamlessly leads to a comprehensive assessment with a level of trust that will facilitate open discussion. The third pillar focuses on all aspects of access, which is perhaps the greatest barrier to care experiences experienced by persons with disabilities. The DCC model describes access in the following terms. Attitude, biases or stigmas associated with disabilities. Physical, that's the most obvious access barrier and it follows the requirements of the ADA and the Olmstead decision. Equipment access, that's exam tables, scales, and x-ray and radiology. Communication, that is interfacing with the participant, 
such as using interpreters for those who are hard of hearing or deaf. Service, access, which refers to referrals and need to make sure that those who are the source of the referral also will be able to meet the needs of the individual. An example of this would be referring someone to an ophthalmologist. And that ophthalmologist's office obviously needs to be accessible, and their machinery needs to be able to be used by someone who is in a chair. And lastly, programmatic. And that is ensuring there are no systemic barriers to receiving appropriate care in a timely manner. The fourth pillar focuses on the provision of primary care. This fully competent primary care has six key components. Enhanced primary care with home-based episodic care capacity provided by a physician or nurse practitioner. The focus of that is to be able to capture avoidable episodes of illness. Focus on early intervention to prevent complications or exacerbation of chronic conditions. 24-7 access of informed and knowledgeable clinicians with electric, electric health record capability. Ability and willingness to partner with the care team. Inpatient care management with aggressive transition planning and follow-up. As we all know, that's often where the greatest difficulties occur. And lastly, accessible physical facilities that ensure adaptive equipment and flexible scheduling. The fifth pillar is care coordination. Relational care coordination is a practice recognizing the participant is the primary source of the identification of care goals and priorities. Key components of this pillar are the identity of risk, requires informed decision-making, team-based care with competency in primary care, nursing, mental health, and community-based services. Note here, I'm not necessarily saying people's professions. I think what's important is that they have the competency in that area. So primary care, a physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant uh, are all possibilities. Sometimes some IDTs have um, a community-based services professional or social worker who also has expertise in mental health. So that could be one person. So the issue at hand here is that it's team-based care with those competencies. Comprehensive, timely assessment, and reassessment. Reassessment is based on any time a change in, in condition uh, is experienced by the participant. Personalized plans of care, incorporating the individual health care goals and preferences. And lastly, but perhaps among the most important components, is management of all transitions with clear communication and accountability of roles. The sixth pillar focuses 
on the provision and integration of long-term services and supports, requiring flexibility and care planning. This pillar includes ensuring participant choice in where and how they live, personal care services using either person-directed or agency model, equipment purchasing, fitting, seating, training, and maintenance clinics, enhanced independence via medically or functionally necessary equipment and technology, and flexibility to use alternatives in lieu of traditional home-based supports. Lastly, the seventh pillar is focused on identifying and addressing behavioral health needs and is considered an integral component of comprehensive disability competent care. Included in this pillar are mental health issues and their impact on the participant, substance abuse, and chemical dependency. In conclusion, disability competent care is just like any other care, but additionally requires an understanding of the experiences of living with a disability. With this understanding, practitioners and plans can establish a relationship with each participant and together they are able to develop a course of action. I worked with a medical director in Minnesota who said the most important tool our staff brought to our services is the relationship we were able to establish with each and every participant. He said without it, we would not be able to meet their needs. With it, we can together accomplish the goals they haven't identified. In summary, the DCC model requires interacting with the participant as a partner and treating them as an individual, not a diagnosis. It is participant-centered, eliminates medical and decisional bias, and respects their dignity of risk becoming proficient in understanding the experiences of the individuals you work with is the first step in becoming disability competent. <laughs>